Greetings and uh, thanks for taking interest in this particular sermon. I, I pray and I hope that you would be spurred on in your relationship with Jesus Christ as a result of not just this sermon, but you know what, at the end of the day, it's getting into God's Word and allowing God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our life. And so I, I pray it's a blessing in addition to all the other resources that we have at redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, if you're new and you're just kind of clicking in for the first time and watching, I want to let you know we're in the middle of a sermon series called Mercy and Wrath. And here's the idea behind the sermon series. We, we know that God is good, and in, in God's goodness, He, he distributes and, and uh, He gives out His mercy, pours out His mercy. You know, we deserve wrath, we deserve judgment, and we, God gives mercy, He provides mercy. And so we see that all throughout the book of Jonah right? Well, what's up with this wrath part, right? And the sermon series is mercy and wrath. Well, wrath is another way of saying retributive justice, but mercy and retributive justice doesn't have the same ring, so we went with wrath. And we also see in other parts of the Bible, in particular, we'll dip our toe in the book of Nahum, where God, um, he, he, he exercises his retributive justice, his wrath upon a sinful people. And so we want to see all this in the right context, and understand that God is good when he gives out his mercy. He is good when he exercises wrath. And so that's what this sermon series is all about. We're exploring in Jonah and then Nahum um, mercy and wrath, the mercy of God and the wrath of God. So if you're just clicking in and wondering what's going on and where we're at, hopefully that can help you. And you can stay tuned for the weeks ahead to see how this unfolds. Well, if you got your Bible, you can open it up to the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah 3. We've spent three sermons, four sermons, I guess, going through chapters 1 and 2. And then we'll be in Jonah 3, verses 1 to 5. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, I'm going to read the text, and then we'll get into the sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, and this morning we come underneath your word, wanting your word to instruct our hearts. And we pray and, and have full expectation that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are indeed at work in all of your children. We pray this and we know this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah 3, verses 1 to 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet for forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the least to the grace of them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I was preparing for this particular sermon, some thoughts came into my head, naturally, of course, and my mind went to some church history, which is not a shocker if you know me. And it began to, I began to think about how what we see here in uh, Jonah 3 uh, maps on with what we see in church history. L- let me try to explain what I mean here. Um, the greatest miracle isn't what we see with our eyes, but what happens in the human heart, right? When you compound one miracle in the human heart with another and with another and with another and another after that, we see movements 
built. That's how movements begin, right? It's not just one person, but we see uh, multiple people being changed. Well, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity began to spread like wildfire across northern Africa and well into Europe. And then it you know, spreads well after that, many centuries later. H- historians who have studied the spread of Christianity are often amazed about how this nondescript Jew from this nondescript town in Israel, who was constantly confronted by people, hey, he had many opponents, how this guy could be the catalyst of such change in such a short amount of time, relatively speaking. A question historians wrestle with is, how did not just one person become a follower of Jesus Christ, but how did entire communities become followers of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you can explain one person, right? But entire communities? That just doesn't make sense. Like, for example, was there like a mass hysteria that all of a sudden everyone followed? right? Uh, Did a video like on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok kind of go viral, capturing minds and hearts? (laughs) Uh, Was there a circus-like act taking place, uh, fooling people left and right, just a bunch of smoke and mirrors? Uh, Did the conspiracy theorists win the battle for truth? Or did miracles take place? Did the unexplainable happen? Did something spiritual happen that transcends Time, it transcends languages, nationalities, race, and ethnic background. To this day, historians are still perplexed at the sudden growth and spread of all these disciples of Jesus Christ, the spread of Christianity. The story about the spread of Christianity in the first century, say first, second, third, and fourth century, uh, right after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that story actually goes back even further into history. As a matter of fact, we read about a similar miracle taking place in the time of Jonah. We see the God of mercy breaking in on the wicked and the ruthless. Um, We see how uh, a reluctant prophet is being used by God to preach to a pagan and rebellious city. And the miracle that took place in Nineveh took place in mass. The miracle that we see in Jonah 3 is what we should want for our community. Uh, We should want this for our city, for our state, and for our country. What we see in Jonah is a massive moral change taking place through repentance. After spending last week on Jonah's prayer in the belly of the giant fish, I want to remind you where God is leading Jonah. Uh, I want to remind you what has led to the miracle that we read about in Jonah 3. We first read about the great city of Nineveh in chapter 1, verse 2. So just about right out of the gate, God is basically saying, Hey, uh, Jonah, you need to go to uh, Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, if you... If you don't remember, it's just not a cool city. It's not the place you want to send your kids uh, when they go away to college or whatever, you know. Uh, During the time of Jonah, Nineveh wielded power through war and was merciless toward its enemies. A few would blame Jonah to think that he had every right to object from going to Nineveh. To do so would simply just put his life in danger. Couple his presence in the city with the message that God wanted him to declare, then he is good as dead. Uh, the, the belly of the giant fish 
was probably more pleasant for Jonah than going to Nineveh. You can think of it this way. If you wanted to write yourself a death warrant during the time of Jonah, all you had to do was go to Nineveh. Good luck surviving that dumpster fire. So Jonah's reluctance isn't entirely unreasonable, albeit still an act of disobedience to God. Now fast forward to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Jonah, if you remember from last week, he's spit out by this giant fish, and he finally musters up the courage and obedience to finally go to Nineveh. What can we learn about God from Jonah's actions at the beginning of chapter 3? Like, we'll talk about Jonah here in a minute, but I want to first ask the question, what can we learn about God throughout all this? Well, I think this is actually a very helpful and instructive point. God is patient. He is patient. In the grace and mercy of God, he gives second chances. I mean, go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. What does it say? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The Lord had to speak to Jonah a second time because what we know and what we read in chapter 1 is that when the Lord spoke to Jonah the first time, what did he do? He fled. He's like, "Uh, I'm out. Peace. Gone. And of course, Jonah's actions were futile. We know that. He, he could not flee the call of God no more than you and I could ultimately flee the call of God. So God, through various acts of providence, brings Jonah to the point where he, he knows he can't flee God. He's like, oh, that was a bad, bad idea. <laughs> when, the Lord, when the word of the Lord comes a second time, Jonah knows he has no recourse. He's going to obey. Before getting into what God will ask Jonah to speak, let's pause for a moment, at least in terms of trying to explain that and see that in the text, but let's pause and realize how patient God can be with his people, right? I mean, if you're listening to this and you are a child of God, if you've been saved by the grace of the gospel, you know how God has been patient with you. God's been patient with with me. In my opinion, it's borderline idiotic to disregard God the first time he speaks. But we know we all do it. I think if we all did an inventory of our past, we would find moments when we did not rightly obey God. For example, if you test this book, right, the Bible, against your actions, what you do, you will find you have not lived up to the standard that God calls you to. Yet, what do we find? What do we know about God? He is patient. God is patient. God can be much more patient than Sean Pow- with Sean Powers than Sean Powers can be patient with his own kids. God's patience with Sean Powers and you is a demonstration of God's grace and mercy upon your life. God isn't constantly beating you down until you fall into line. No, God shows that you shows you through his mercy and grace and love that he wants you to follow him. It's through his grace and mercy and love which draws you to obey his calling for your life. Listen, here, here's another lesson we can learn from Jonah. When Jonah flees and went his own way, right, he acted out of pride. 
He acted out of pride. He thought his way was better than God's way. Jonah, Jonah, let's face it, he needed a bit of humble pie. It's clear he was humbled by God while he was in the belly of the fish. We read that last week. As a result of his humility is that God continues to extend mercy to Jonah. The same with you. When you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you experience, you understand in a deeper way God's grace and mercy upon your life. Conversely, and, and again, this is, we saw this with Jonah, when you are proud, thinking you can go it alone or go your own way, you enter storms in your own life that are caused by what? Your sin. By your own pride. Here's how this principle is articulated in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that particular phrase is from the Old Testament, is quoted many times throughout the New Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God uses the humble. But if you are proud, you will be opposed by God. Jonah had learned a valuable lesson, and now he was ready to jump on board God's mission of mercy and not his own mission. So God had been patient with Jonah, but during the hard knocks of life, Jonah was humbled. And after he was humbled by God, he was then ready to finally serve God. Now, moving into verses 3 and 4, what does God tell Jonah to do the second time around, right? He tells Jonah to get up and go, which is exactly what the Lord said to Jonah the first time, arise and go. God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach, verse 3. And then after a few days' journey, uh, Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh. And here's what we read. This is, this is the sermon God wants Jonah to speak. And it's astonishing uh, that it's only one sentence. One sentence. We've got one, two, eight words in the English. That's the sermon. Get for 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. One sentence. It's the shortest recorded sermon in the Bible. I mean, could you imagine me preaching a sermon in one sentence? Maybe some of you are kind of like, yeah, yeah that'd be kind of nice every now and then. <laughs> right? Just one sentence. Even if you judge Jonah's message by modern-day evangelism standards, his message like, still seems lacking. Like, there are no evangel evangelism programs and churches that are named after Jonah. And I, and I know this to be case, the case as well. For many Christians, Jonah's message comes across as harsh, right? Uh, he's basically saying, you have, Nineveh, you have 40 days to get your act together or else. <laughs> well, that doesn't seem very kind. <laughs> so what are we to make of this brief message? Like, what can we learn from it? Uh, how could one person, or an entire city for that matter, respond to a few words? I mean, here are a couple points. First, sometimes the hard message is the right message for a person to hear. 
right? Sometimes the hard message, which I would imagine this would be the hard message for, for Jonah to deliver. After all, he's not amongst friends delivering this message. But it's the right message for a person here. In my years of pastoral ministry and counseling, I have I've observed noticeable change in a person after I've spoken some hard truth. Let me just give you a couple of examples, and I'll use some names that are that are you know made up. So if you're if you're named after any of these individuals, I'm sorry. Just kind of using names out of out of left field. Let's call this first person Jack, right? And Jack comes to me and says, "Hey, Pastor Sean, I don't think I'm living for God." I'm like, "Okay," and then he continues to say, "I keep making decisions that I regret later." <laughs> well, I would maybe come back and say something like this: "Well, have you repented?" turned from your sin and started living for God. Have you done that? Have you started living on God's terms instead of your own terms, Jack? Or do you hide and ignore your sin and pretend it doesn't exist, thus never truly dealing with your sin? That could be one conversation. Here's another example. Let's call this person Sally. Hey, Pastor Sean, I don't think I'm living for God. I keep making decisions I regret later. I could respond and say, well, have you repented and turned from your sin and, and moved toward God, right? Or do you pass the blame of your sin to someone else? Do you make excuses or, or, or rationalize your sin away? One more example. Uh, let's call this person Doug. And again, sorry for any Dougs out there. Hey, hey, Pastor Sean. Yeah, Doug, what's up? I don't think I'm living for God. Okay, we had this conversation last week, Doug. And uh, Doug continues to say, I keep making decisions I regret later. All right, Doug, here's what, I, here's what I think. Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in God? Or do you continue to think that your wicked and selfish actions do not impact the people around you? Now, not all my counseling sessions are like that. But sometimes the hard truth is the right truth for a person to hear. But I'm sure you see a pattern throughout these examples, right? Listen, if I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say they wanted a change but didn't want to change in order to make the change happen, I would be a rich man. Like, I want to change, I want to change. Okay, go change. But I want to change. <laughs> okay, right? You don't want to repent and turn? The path toward change for you, for me, for Nineveh is to take to heart the hard truth. The beautiful truth that is hard. Repent. Turn from your sin and then trust in God. And you know what you will find after repentance and then trusting in God? Ah, You'll find change. So, there are times when hearing the hard truth is not only good, but it's necessary. And before someone tweets at me and says, hey, it's not loving to tell someone to repent, I simply need to say this. Love and truth in the Bible are never divorced from each other. Love and truth are always held together. Here's the reality. It is unloving to not tell someone the truth even when it's hard. The path to God is paved with the sweet response of repentance. And that is the loving truth. Here's another takeaway from Jonah's message to the Ninevites. There is beauty in brevity. There is beauty in brevity. In this case, Nineveh didn't need to hear anything else. Uh, they, didn't need to, they didn't need Jonah to go on and on and on and on. 
it's clear from their actions. They, they knew their own wickedness, right? They knew their reputation. Jonah didn't need to get creative in his sermon. We don't read anything about uh, Jonah bring a prop onto stage to create, create some great point using the prop that connects with his main point. You know, uh, Jonah didn't hunt down the equivalent to a secular movie clip to keep people's attention. Jonah didn't tell them 15 different stories to try to make the same point over and over again. Jonah didn't even need to tell them about the great theological truths of the Old Testament. The Spirit of God used Jonah's brief message to bring about repentance and change. That's what Jonah needed. It's all he needed. All he said is that you all have 40 days, and if you've not repented, you will experience the retributive justice of God. All he needed to do and all he did was deliver the message that God told him to deliver. Jonah's message, it's instructive for 21st century pastors, preachers, ministers. The job of the preacher is to speak what God has said. I mean, I say it this way. I don't want anyone to come to Redemption Hill Church to hear something pithy from, from me. <laughs> right? I, I want people to hear from the Lord. And that is all Jonah needed to do. He needed people to hear from the Lord, not from him. Last, and to the point of the entire book of Jonah, it's only when a person has been confronted with the truth and then repents that the mercy of God is fully on display. Here's the hard reality for Nineveh, and this is where Jonah probably had the correct perception. Nineveh did deserve God's wrath. Right? They deserved it fully. They did deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. They did deserve God's full retributive justice. Where Jonah's theology was all messed up is that he wanted to be the one to say, they get mercy and they don't, right? Jonah wanted to be the arbiter of how all that works out into who receives mercy and who receives wrath. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where Jonah went wrong. He's, he wanted to be like, they're cool and they're not. But thank goodness Jonah isn't God. Thank goodness. So this brief message uh, came with power, power of the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance and change. Now, let's get to verse 5 because that's where we see the move toward repentance and change in Nineveh. We read in verse 5 that Nineveh believed God. We read that word in your English, believed. And then they matched what they believed with their actions. The other way the Hebrew word for believe can be translated as trust and faith. What we read about the Ninevites is not much different than what happened to the Gentile sailors in chapter 1 with a couple of key differences. So that's important to note. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 are oftentimes uh, considered parallel passages to one another in, in terms of what we see. So there are similarities, but there's some key differences as well. And here are the differences. In chapter 1, we see the sailors believe God despite Jonah's actions. Right? Jonah was fleeing, and yet we see, we see the Spirit of God at work in the sailors, and they began to worship Yahweh. But here, Jonah obeys God, and he is now a tool in God's hand to bring about repentance from sin. What can we learn from chapter 1 and chapter 3? God's mission cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted. God's mission isn't going to stall because Jonah or Sean Powers refuses to preach. Believe me when I say, I'm very replaceable. God's glorious mission is not going to stop. Period. 
The other difference between the sailors and the Ninevites is the depth of their newfound faith. It, it says in chapter 1, the sailors believed Yahweh. It's a, a name that for God's covenant, faithful covenant with his people, right? However, in chapter 3, verse 5, it says Nineveh believed in Elohim. So that's a, that's a difference. Um, the sailors confessed Yahweh, and we have the Ninevites saying Elohim, another name for God in the Bible. But Elohim doesn't carry the same sense and weight of, as Yahweh. So did the Ninevites believe that God was going to destroy them, thus they repented, right? Like It's like, ah, God's coming, he's going to you know, execute his retributive justice, let's repent, let's, let's not die. Is that why they believed? Is that what they believed? Or did they have saving faith? The text is silent and theologians are divided on the issue. What we do know is God was going to smite Nineveh if they did not stop their exploiting in wicked and ruthless ways. And it takes the Spirit of God to bring about such massive change. That we know for sure. I think we can say Nineveh did begin to understand God's mercy. Uh, what they received from God began to fly into the face of how they had lived their entire life. Remember, they were merciless toward others, toward their enemies in particular. And now they were experiencing mercy. Well, here, I do think we see the world being turned upside down for this city. Could the mercy of God cause some, if not all, within the city to cease from worshiping their own gods, you know, idolatry and worshiping the one true God, Yahweh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, uh, I want you to see the magnitude of the miracle here. Could you imagine having the reputation of being one of the most ruthless and depraved persons in a city, right? Yeah, and perhaps you want to consider your modern-day Las Vegas and the stigma that happens. It's just reckless and idolatrous. And then on a term, turn of a dime, repenting, believing in God to whatever degree here. And then to match what you say, you act upon your belief by fasting, basically saying no to all the desires, right? Fasting. And then putting on sackcloth. Now, we don't put on sackcloth. No one's putting on sackcloth at Redemption Hill Church, but we read it here. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that they were signaling to God that they are under his submission. They were submitting themselves to Yahweh. That's what putting on sackcloth, sackcloth means. It says at the end of verse 5 that everyone was on board. So from the least to the greatest, everyone was on board. They were fasting and putting on sackcloth. They were depriving themselves of their desires and submitting to Yahweh. Now, perhaps you think this kind of radical change is ridiculous, especially this kind of moral change in society. Perhaps just think, you think this kind of change could only happen like a fantasy movie, <laughs> like this, this stuff you just don't see. But here's the deal. Experiencing the mercy of God can cause anyone to make a radical change. Ask, ask anyone who knows they deserved judgment from God and instead have received mercy, and you will hear a story of a reckless, depraved, and idolatrous person changed. They will tell you about the miracle that has taken place in their heart. Go ahead and ask the friends of that particular person, 
how they change and what they see in that person, the differences in that person. Like, I've had this story so many times. I've heard this story so many times. Uh, yeah, I remember him. I remember that guy. Uh, we used to carouse at the bar together and just do dumb stuff together all the time, but he's changed now. He's kind, generous, works hard. He's living for someone other than himself. It seems like a miracle took place because I never thought that guy could change. And here's what I want to submit to you in light of what we've seen in the previous weeks and what we see today. The miracle of faith that takes place in the heart is, the, is a greater miracle than a giant fish swallowing a person and then that person surviving. The miracle of faith in a person's heart is a far greater miracle than the moral change of an entire city. Because of our sin and propensity to rebel against God, the greater miracle is faith in God. So do not be fooled to think otherwise. Here's why the story of Christianity, which we read about in Jonah 3, is so amazing. And I keep saying this word over and over and over again, but here it is another time. This is why the story is so amazing. Mercy. Mercy. Like the Ninevites, you and I deserve God's retributive justice. We deserve wrath. But through believing and repentance, God has lavished mercy upon you. He has withheld his, ju- his just judgment from you and put it upon Jesus at the cross. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can have hope that God will pour out his mercy and grace on other members of our family, community, cities, and country. We can plead and pray to God, pour out your mercy. And so God is raising up a bunch of obedient Jonas to speak the simple and loving truth of faith, repentance, and mercy. You know what? God is calling you up, Christian, to be a tool in his redeeming hand. I want to close, but the story of Nineveh is not over. Next week, we will see what happens when government leaders repent from their wicked ways. And we see what happens when, when leaders lead out and lead others into repentance and faith. And then we will also see God's mercy poured out once again on sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it instructs our hearts and our lives. I pray that you continue to, to work uh, in your people, continue to build your church for our good and for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.